0: In this one, I had a little bit more time to play with, so I wanted to slow down my tempo and just really start hypnotizing the audience into this new way of looking at the band. It is still like the same band. The DNA is there. It's just mutated.
1: I saw the movie. I enjoyed the hell out of that movie, and I realized I kind of like missed the Doomstar Requiem. Oh, okay. So people need to definitely see Doomstar Requiem before they see Army of the Doomstar. So
0: absolutely, that is like that is uh, well, that's kind of like, um you know, in season four. I mean, the whole, the whole every single season has a purpose. You know, we had uh, at the beginning of each season, I had an idea of what needed to happen and what we were doing with it. The first two seasons were like more of joke stuff. this Season three was like, I need you to develop these characters because I know what the end is. And then season four was, we're getting the story started. Doomstar Requiem was very specific. There's a new kind of like, there's some new stuff that happens. What is the Doomstar? You know, you you find out what it is in in the Doomstar Requiem. It's a musical. It's experimental. And then we go from that into Army of the Doomstar, which is more of a traditional kind of feature narrative with these guys. And it's more of a character-driven narrative too. But it's also got a ton of um You know, it's more of like a dark fantasy kind of that turns into an action movie. Starts as a comedy, moves into a dark fantasy, and goes into kind of an action movie in its third act. So yeah, it's required viewing to see the Doomstar Requiem if you haven't yet.
1: Yeah, and it's not a spoiler to say like Army of the Doomstar is not a musical. <laughs>
0: That is true. Yeah, it is definitely not a musical, and it's yeah. And it was like I, I thought whatever it was I wanted to do for that musical, I did it with that musical, and I thought this doesn't. This one needs to be like more of a there's music i mean there's music in every moment of the movie it's almost there's so much score which is another big thing that i that i worked on um inside of this movie establishing mood and tone that um that i just thought there's there's probably as much music in this movie as there is in the Doomstar star it's just score
1: yeah it was it was beautiful i was like holy like once i listened to it like kind of separately like like after you watch it yeah was like listen to just the music alone it's like oh wait this is a straight like i kind of thought it was going to be like one of those like musical movies where there's going to be some acting kind of talking and then we're going to jump into a song but that pretty yeah yeah Doomstar kind of Requiem kind of just went straight all the way through and that was that was impressive as hell
0: yeah it was it was a fun challenge I mean I only want to do something that's kind of difficult because I get bored quickly so I wanted a challenge in the Doomstar Requiem and I wanted to be able to have like you know a 50-piece orchestra and French horns and strings and and be able to have you know, moments of heavy metal, some songs that feel like they're not, they're classic musical songs, you know, they're moments like big show showstoppers and stuff like that. Um, so I, I love music and storytelling. I love music and storytelling because, you know, I love The Who, I love Tommy, I love King Diamond, I love Them, I love Abigail, I love, you know, Conspiracy, I love all of King Diamond's storytelling. And so I love, but I really do like all kinds of musicals, I like, I like Jesus Christ Superstar. It's really dramatic. I love Avita. All these things that are not heavy metal at all, but I grew up with them. So they live inside of my head somewhere. And I thought for that project, what can I do? I mean, and and I thought, here's the story I need to tell. This is ultimately a rescue story, but we're trying to rescue Abigail and Toki Wartooth. How can I get them there and how can I develop my characters and how can I introduce this really important kind of piece of sci-fi lore which is the doom star which which takes on many kind of uh the doom star itself the star that appears in the sky that takes on these kind of like magnificent properties and and has and and its presence there kind of shifts the whole world into its kind of final its final place so that the movie can be set up
1: yeah the score alone is just worth it <laughs> i gotta say just like like oh you can watch the movie but just listen to the music the score like i say you are yeah. outdone yourself on the score part alone, but the story overall, it, that's a great, it was, it was just, Thanks. again, I was just impressed from just like, Oh, yeah, you know, it's like, cause yeah, a lot of people kind of like, Oh, just a metal thing. It's going to be kind of a little campy cheesy. And it's like, I didn't think it was, it was, yeah, it, it was, just very, it was like, Oh, this is a, it's, I don't say it's real, but it was like, Oh, you seriously, you, this is not a joke. This wasn't a joke. You, it is a yeah, joke, well, but it, it's not a joke. Well, you know it, what I mean? It, the whole thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course I know what you mean. That's, <laughs> that's kind of what we're thinking because the whole idea is that we, you know, we don't have to prove that we're funny at, at this point. You know, we have funny characters, but this story isn't a comedy story, really. This is um, this is a story of you know, it's basi- it's basically Nathan Explosion's story, and he is a guy who, who we meet him, and he is in kind of a he's in a rough place. He is in a professional and romantic flat spin and at that point he's asked to write a song that may or may not save the world
1: the song of salvation and
0: that's and that's the song of salvation right and what is that and what does that mean to a guy who's basically spent his entire existence being selfish about about you know being kind of combative about being kind of like a perpetual teenager stuffed into a man's body and that's what most of death clock is there are a bunch of these kind of teenagers with these kind of uh, almost <laughs> cavemen-like attitudes. They're like the Lost Boys. They really don't have parents, you know. They're kind of, and in this movie, it they without without supervision, without Charles Austin their manager or without their spiritual guru Ishnefis who who's killed in the uh, Doomstar Requiem. They have to kind of go at it alone, and they have, you know, they do find someone else to kind of help them along the way. And this is a story about flipping sides, about kind of, you know. When push comes to shove, can you can you really sacrifice yourself and do the right thing? And that is why I mean, that's why this movie had to be made, because without this movie, they're just a bunch of dipshits running into each other. And uh, they're very funny and they make cool music and all that stuff. But but this is like when you when you have a TV show, you have to kind of keep your characters in stasis, meaning like Seinfeld doesn't change or Homer Simpson doesn't change at all. Until you get to the very last episode, or the office, nobody changes until the last episode, and that's what this was. How can I make them change in the last episode? And how can I make this a cool kind of like midnight heavy metal cartoon movie, you know? And so that was that was the challenge. How can I take this DNA and mutate it into this shape?
1: Yeah, I, I saw it, and it was like even just listening to the not not to get to the album itself, the Dove Clock album yet, but yeah. just the movie. It was very, I, I hate saying the word mature, but it's like, wow, these characters have grown up. Yeah, it's been at least, a, it's been what, almost 10 years since Requiem and before that. And yeah. I didn't realize it was that long. I was like, what, it's been like five years? I thought it was like three or four, I thought yeah. it was like at least five years. And then I was like, oh, wait, I was 2013. Uh, ago, yeah. 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 And it's like, it, yeah. it sounds, the album sounds mature. And even like the way they start at the beginning, yeah, Nathan's definitely kind of PTSD'd up. <laughs> Him and yeah, him and did. Toki yeah. are little him and Toki have kinda like are kinda like PTSD like that's like you just yeah. see like, oh wow, you kinda felt you kinda feel bad for them almost and like kinda pickles kinda had yeah, to step yeah. up to like be the all right, I'm the I'm the drummer, but now I have to like kind of be the band leader. Like, yeah, like they call him the mother, but yeah. he was definitely like the yeah. band. He's basically like the heart. He became the heart of the group, I felt.
0: He had to, yeah. He had, he had, I think it's almost like, I, we always thought, as, you know, a band is a family. And we say that inside of this whole thing. And that's kind of another kind of idea that a band is a family. And a band is a family. It's almost like a family of roommates, you know? But in this case, we had to like build it a little bit stronger. And Tickles did have to, he's given one, he's given one directive in, in the beginning of the movie to just be a good friend. And what is a good friend? a good friend is a, a person that tells you the truth and a good person tells you the shit you, you don't want to hear sometimes, you know, and yeah. that's who pickles has to be. And we do say, we do say he is, the, I always thought of Nathan and pickles are like the mother and father of the band. And Toki's the little sister. I thought that's something that we always thought. And, you know, Toki at the beginning of this thing, went through a traumatic thing that he's not dealing with either. He's regressing like a child and he's, you know, he's acting out like a child. Squizgar is kind of acting like a bratty teenage older brother and uh, and Murderface has got his own crisis to deal with because you know again if you see the the uh, Doomstar Requiem you'll see that that's, we do kind of set this up what's going on with Murderface's arm is a big yes. question so 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 we had to kind of like again we had to we had to define what Murderface brings to the table and it really is something that nobody really talks about which is the person who shakes their head and says I don't think so this isn't good enough or I hate this or this sucks and somebody and this is a part of I think the creative mind divided into different little attitudes, you know, and, and murder faces is the voice of
1: dissent. Yeah. That's clock is basically, you can say there's different, that's everybody's personality. <laughs> it's like, you can break it down. as like, yeah. Oh, there's a, there's a, there's a member of each one of death clock in our head. Okay. Like, yeah. There's times where I feel super yeah. confident where I'm like, Oh yeah, I could do no wrong. And there's the times that the, we all have had the imposter syndrome, murder face pop up and you're like oh god why am I even doing this should I even am I even worthy of doing this like I I'm talented I know I can do it but I don't deserve it he's definitely yeah yeah (laughs) definitely that Uh, no I think
0: uh, that's that's very true and you know I think everyone from from the people that I uh that I hold uh that I really admire in 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 industry yeah uh favorite directors of mine favorite writers of mine they all are have crippling self-doubt and that's just a part of it and you have to like you have to take that little character and you have to take another character and say don't listen to that character they are br-. and and you do have to kind of you know you, you, when there is a voice of dissent somebody saying um try harder work harder this is you're full of shit sometimes there's there's a, it's worth listening to and how do you make it better you know and that's that's just part of the the checks and balances of being creative that one person kind of like uh, hopefully or a group of people can, uh, and uh, employ to make a project work. So, so yeah, it's funny. It's all very meta, meaning that like, uh, here we are, there's a, this is a movie where we have to find the song of salvation and I still have, and I personally have to write the song of salvation and I have to personally write the song that isn't the song of salvation. And I have to, make sure that they sound different and feel different. And one of them, one of them is saying something. And one of them is, is a tantrum, a, a ridiculous tantrum of, uh, of again, like just of, of anger fueled at yourself. And that's what, that's what aortic desecration is. Aortic desecration means heartbreak. What if Cannibal Corpse wrote a song about heartbreak? And that's what aortic desecration is, but it's self-inflicted wounds and it's a tantrum, a raging heavy metal tantrum
1: yeah it's like you kind of felt bad for him like like when they start playing that like without like spoiling the movie for anybody like mm-hmm. i know it's not coming out for another few weeks but yeah it's like like oh man you just kind of feel bad for him when he kind of has that breaking point you see and it's like oh yeah 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 kind of we've kind of <laughs> had those moments yeah. i've hey i'm a drummer self self uh you know i've, I've played drums yeah. in a couple of bands here and there i remember like the first time i had my super serious oh wow this band is signed we're recording an actual record and like cool you know before we get into the studio everything sounds fine but the minute we got in the studio i kind of had like i've never felt a panic i never had a panic attack before and i've had like (laughs) holy shit i'm panicked it's like why can't i play correctly like i was playing fine yesterday but now that the pressure's on like i was like oh i totally crumbled under the pressure and i was like i wish i had i wish i had a pickles there to like What's wrong with you, <laughs> asshole? And slap me and kick me like, yeah. and, like help me get over it. You know, it's like instead of like, all right, yeah, we'll just yeah. work what you can do right now. we well, this this is what you can do. We're just gonna work with that. It's like I wish somebody just gave me that shake or a slap to like, hey, let's get past it instead of all right, this is what you can do. Cool, we're just gonna do that. We don't care. You know, it's like
0: yeah, you know, it's funny. It's funny. Um, you know, I experienced that too. I really do. Like uh, from when I first started playing guitar in front of people when I was a teenager, um, I really, I really was not. I was, I was really like having a a difficult time. I was really folding under the pressure and it's really crazy. And I asked myself, why am I, I finally care about something. And why am I, why is something in my brain freaking out when I have to play in front of people? What all I want to do is, this is all I want to do. This is like, why is this fear coming between me and my goal? You know, what is this? And how is it possible that I did this to myself? (laughs) You know, yeah. it's pretty crazy that, that these are like self-inflicted wounds. But truthfully, I put so much pressure. You know, a lot of us are like in music, especially in heavy metal. There's a lot of perfectionism because from Cannibal Corpse to Nile to, you know, to Gojira to Mathanon, their playing is really like just dead on all the time. It's major perfectionism to land these songs, to be able to play this stuff live and And truthfully, the reason I thought was i- i f- okay there's a lot of good news that I'm terrified about playing in front of people when I was a teenager. The good news is that I finally found something that I care about, and I'm so afraid of failing that I'm failing but i but the good news is I care about something now. I finally care about music. I care about this more than anything. I put it about everything else in my life. I really care about it and and then I had to go deep inside. And, and start basically saying, I have to develop calluses. I have to like, like I did on my fingers. I have to do that on my heart now and go in front of people as often as possible and almost like rub salt in the wounds and, <laughs> and desensitize myself so that I can just kind of walk in front of people, think clearly, grab a guitar and play something cleanly, you know?
1: Yeah.
0: And that's, that's, that's the life goal. You know, it's something, it's a struggle that you have to kind of deal with all the time.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, a little funny note on on, 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 a, on what you just said. Uh, like on our videos, like on our YouTube and our and our podcast, we have a song from a band called Salted Wounds, which was my personal band from high school that mm-hmm. me and we're all together. Yeah. And it's like, oh, we use our music as our intro music. And people ask us about it. It's like, hey, that's... And it's just a demo version of one of our songs. And it's like, oh, we wanna hear the whole song one day. And I'm like, I gotta sit down and play that again (laughs) and i'm like oh i don't know if i want to do it uh, but it's like i have the electronic drum kit here i was like i need to just dust off i need to dust off and build that that skill back up you know because i've done i do a couple things here and there drum wise you know hang out with some other musicians and i drum tech for like corey pierce from god forbid and his other projects and it's like i just you know it's like oh yeah i missed playing you know i was like i hate recording (laughs) yeah (laughs) I think that might be it I gotta say yeah
0: I know that same feeling too I mean I really do um I remember recording the first kind of like like really spending time on the first kind of guitar thing that I really like I'd recorded a lot of little demos and stuff but one day I actually had access to a real studio when I was still in my like you know in in at music school and I I could not get through the whole song I was just like uh failing along the way and my now my relationship with recording is that i'm the engineer i'm the uh you know, i'm actually starting and stopping the sessions on my guitar playing on leads and all that stuff or or sometimes but the more you do it the less daunting it is and the more you make peace with that click track and yeah. find a way to like fall in love with it and go hey you're my friend i'm i can only groove with you let's just let's just sit and work it out it is like, you know, all those things. I think throughout, by the way, we're talking about, we're talking about all these little metaphors that we're talking about are all existing in the movie about. Yes, they are. About, <laughs> about failing and then about failing and then having a second shot, you know?
1: Yeah, that's and why I think it kind of clicked what, a little bit. It just clicked personally. It's like, it does feel yeah. like that that redemption, but it's like, we can do this. Like, all right, we can just duck yourself up and go.
0: Well, I mean, the the question is, you know, when, when you have no choice, when every other option is thrown away, you have no choice but to say, okay, I've seen the worst of this. What, how can I pull myself out of it? And that's, that's part of, I think that's everybody's life, really. And that's why this style of movie, there are a lot of different stories you can tell. You know, there are revenge stories. There are horror movies. There are, you know, mysteries. But this is a story that is called um, Rite of Passage movie, which means that somebody has to change change their ideology, start the movie thinking one way and end the movie thinking another. And those are some of my favorite movies because they're empowering, I think. And that I feel better afterwards going like, oh, oh, I just experienced the 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 lead of the movie's entire story. And I watched them walk into the wrong situation or do the wrong thing or or make a bad decision and and have to pull themselves out of it. And can they, or can't they? And it really gets dicey, you know? And I really wanted to put the audience into a place where, where they think that we just may not make it out of here. And um, so you have to get, you have to like, I mean, so you have to take your entire cast and take them all the way to hell and see if they can crawl their way out and, uh, and survive. Will they? Won't they? We don't know
1: and i got us i know it's been like since it's been 10 years since the last part how much from your original say draft of of this version has changed since requiem to now
0: yeah it's um yeah we've been working on it for the last like almost three years i think and uh, so yeah i guess you can subtract that from the time but truthfully the story that i needed to tell is the same the question is how do I tell the story? And that I think would have been different had I done this 10 years ago versus now, because in the interim, in that time, while I'm, you know, though, I'm not doing death clock stuff, I'm doing a lot of other stuff. That's, that's really interesting to me. And I'm just trying to grow as a director and grow as a writer. And so in the meantime, you know, I'm playing with live action cameras. I'm doing video shoots. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm taking I'm taking what I like to look at and I'm and I'm categorizing it and I'm learning how to build these looks and I'm learning how to build these moods. And that's something I, I would play around with in this show, but I wanted to really push it farther and, and slow it down, slow down the tempo. Because Death Clock moves really fast. Every episode's like light speed. Even the Star Requiem. It just starts and it ends and you didn't know that an hour passed. And uh in this one I had a little bit more time to play with. So I wanted to slow down my tempo and just really start hypnotizing the audience into this new way of looking at the band that is still like the same band the d like i said the dna the dna is there it's just mutated so nathan's still nathan he's just a little bit more of a character of nathan than he was before so that was the so that was the trick and all these little skill sets all kind of came together and another thing that happened was i slowly but surely upgraded all my kind of scoring devices you know my keyboards my my um my plugins and all that stuff have all kind of been upgraded throughout the years and right before the pandemic i upgraded my computer and i upgraded all my computer my uh my scoring and synthesizers and orchestral and choir stuff and and it made me just like experiment like crazy and so Between the score, between the directing, between like, you know, storytelling, I had learned a lot of tricks along the way and I think I think I think the version that I that I did I don't I I think I think I think if I'd done it ten years ago I I wouldn't have been able to do it this way. I I don't think I had this this skill set just yet. I get that. But the I story's don't. the same. I always, when I think about the story, I think I am owed certain things. I'm owed the conclusion of the tribunal of the bad guys. You know, I'm owed the conclusion of murder Face. I'm owed the, uh, the relationship between the doom star and death clock and, and the bad guys and all that stuff. I'm owed all of that. And I'm also owed, um, a final change where we take, I mean, ultimately this is a movie about celebrities, and this, uh, or this, this TV show is about celebrities, enough celebrities that happen to be an extreme metal band. And it starts with all they care about is money. And this movie is about like, what if music were a religion? And at some point in the movie, it starts. It starts. Music has to be a religious experience to kind of do what it needs to do in this movie. So, um, so that's what it is. From a corporation to some kind of a religion, you know. Yeah. And Death Clock has to go from. Being the lords of the manor to servants of the planet, so that's the whole big arc from the first episode, from the very first episode of the show. We meet Death Clock through the servants' quarters. We meet through the through the chef, who's going to get you know blown to bits by the end of the episode. But we go, we follow the chef who is saying this prayer at the very very beginning of the first episode. I'm a gear in the wheel of the clock. I fear not my mortality. I will serve to the best of my ability and that and it starts out from a very religious place but there are these people that are worshiping this band and um but the band are they're messiahs they're like these messiahs but they're dipshits and they don't know what their role is yet and they're gonna have to learn it in this movie so all this stuff has been set up for a really long time and all the the DNA is connected throughout the whole thing I just you know had to had to wait 10 years to finish it
1: yeah it's like yeah I'm glad you didn't just and it's not something you could, yeah. I know you've done a few. Uh, there's been a few Metal Death Clock comic comic books, and it's like mm-hmm. if they're canon or not canon, or just like little side stories I could fill in here and there. But yeah, this is definitely. I'm glad. Unfortunately, it took this long, but yeah, it seems like mm-hmm. this long is the right time for it to come out.
0: Yeah, and you know, I gotta say it was it was pretty crazy because I knew in 2019 we did a, a show, a Death Clock show, we did a one off, and I think that was kind of the opening up of the gateway and and shortly thereafter they said hey how about this movie and not only a movie how about a you know a record and how about and I was like yeah and a score (laughs) because I was really excited about a score because I love movie scores and so I said okay two records and a movie and so I had so I had the pandemic the beginning of the pandemic to start demoing and figuring out what this is all going to be and so um, it was kind of crazy good timing to have this project during that time to to scrutinize, you
1: know? Yeah, I gotta say the let's see how could I say without spoiling about uh murder face uh the synth music with his arm. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> that yeah. scene
1: that scene was that music was phenomenal. I was like it gave me like it remind it it reminded me of the Exorcist but didn't hit those <laughs> and it hit, it wasn't exactly, it was like, oh, it was like, I hear a little tubular bell-esque sounds here. That just, just oh, the tonality yeah, yeah, just yeah. like reminded me of it. I was like, oh, that's beautiful.
0: I'm glad you like that because that was a big part of what I was thinking about. I was think. I think about tubular bells and I think about Goblin and Susperia.
1: Yes. And I think
0: about Tangerine Dream. And I think about like all those really cool bands that, because that was something um, between, I think, between tubular bells, I think it started with tubular bells. And then I think that Suspiria soundtrack kind of picked up where it left off. And then you go to like um, William Friedkin's Sorcerer and you have Tangerine Dream driving with these kind of driving pulses that are just kind of pushing the the, the narrative forward. And also it's kind of terrifying too. Then I think about scary, scary score, like um, Jerry Goldsmith from uh, what do you call it? Uh, The Omen. That is one of the scariest sounding scores. So Gothic and big. Yeah, there's pu- driving pulses, and why is that? What, you know, what? What? What is the instrumentation? Yeah, and why is it supposed to be? Yeah, I really wanted to get like kind of a little bit more subterranean with that, and kind of get it a little bit more
1: eerie and fucked up. Yeah, I that was just that was well done. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, thanks. Yeah, thank, it, thank you. it put a smile on my face. I was like, ooh, and then it's like that's when you. That's when I really started paying attention to the score and i was like i'm glad that it's (laughs) also being released separately as well
0: yeah 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 well when you hear the score you're gonna hear um it's funny because i had these two albums one of them i thought is definitely the death clock album where i have all these songs with nathan singing and it's really brutal and it's heavier and it's deeper and it's more mystical and some of it's faster and more aggressive than anything i've done And then I had this record where I thought, this score album, where I thought, oh, I'm going to have like the band playing because at some point, the score turns to a heavy metal score. So that all stays inside of the, the score album, too. So the production, though, I got to say, I'm I'm glad that you really are responding to that score album because I really am proud of it. It's, I'm almost more proud of it than anything I've done because I really love film scoring. And I really like that I get to manipulate the mood of a movie with music. Those,
1: those are the best... So, those are the best. Like film scores are, yeah. are like I think underrated. Like if you don't have a good score on your movie, it kind of takes away from your movie.
0: Oh yeah, no, it can, it can. I mean, look, there are plenty of people that do really great sparse filmmaking. Like Sidney Lumet does it. Like you know, um, and he, and that was his whole ideology was don't, don't do anything too fancy. Tell the story in, in a very subtle and great way. I really appreciate that. But I also love Don Carpenter. I love. Um, yeah, I love uh, you know like uh, Dario Argento, who really does mix the score. I just saw Oppenheimer, and the score is mixed so loud, and I was like, "Whoa!" I love Hans Zimmer, I love all that. I love the Dune score, I love the new Dune score, I love the original Dune score, but um, but I really love that stuff. And what really got me um, to it was really exciting about this score was that I worked with okay, I've worked with Bear McCreary before um bear McFerry is known for doing the walking dead soundtrack he just did the lord of the rings that huge amazon lord of the rings he okay like a I, 90s,
1: I know him from i think he did some days. stuff with buffy back in the day so like i'm i'm I, familiar with bear from his buffy work
0: but he did uh oh i got to play guitar on godzilla king of monsters that he scored so me and gene hoagland and brian beller played a cover of godzilla of blue oyster cults godzilla on that and um and so anyway <laughs> where I'm going with this is that I had a conversation with bear before I started this project. And I said, what I need is like, I think I need like a team because I want to write everything. I want to like fine tune every single note, but I need a team to kind of help me. And he goes, that's perfect timing. He goes, I want my team sparks and shadows to work with you on this thing. So I had this really great team in in sparks and shadows, which is bear McCreary's production team, his score production team. So I had really great arrangers, copyists and uh, mixers that all came with this package and they really elevated everything, but it really is the score that I wanted it to sound like. So in the final mix of it, when you listen to it on its own, it really takes you through the entire journey of the movie without the movie. So it's, and it's really dramatic and it's really dynamic. And there are lots of different tones. Like I said, there's that, there's that, Oh, there's also Giorgio Moroder, who I love. Cause, <laughs> cause I was thinking this is like a heavy metal, dark fantasy and I thought dark fantasy and I started thinking like even the never ending story where I have synthesizers and an orchestra. Because I did get, uh, I did get an orchestra. I got the, the Budapest orchestra to play with me on this. So you're, when you're hearing strings, you're hearing real strings and you're hearing French horns, you're hearing real French horns. And then I have all my synthesizers and all my kind of like John Carpenter and Hans Zimmer world of synthesizers and stuff. And then I'm also thinking of uh, James Bond, like John Barry. There are big, kind of expansive moments and bad guy moments where I think about John Barry, and then there are also uh, Ennio Morricone, and on top of that, uh, Basil Polidors, who did the Conan score.
1: All right on. And
0: there are moments where I go, okay, here we are into this kind of like we go into Act Two and we go into a new world, and this world is the organic world, the world we left the city and we go into the world of or, or, an, an organic place, and I want the instruments to kind of start getting more fantastical. And, and some of them are trippier, and some were more like fire and brimstone horns. And uh, so you'll hear it all on the score when you sit and listen to the whole thing.
1: All oh, right, I'm excited for that. Yeah, because like, yeah, like some of my people is like, I love like Fabio frizzy. I love like the zombie, the zombie score yeah. from that horror movie, or yeah. like, yeah, Bernard Herman, I think. It's Bernard Herman. Yeah. yeah. And Bernard. Oh, yeah, he's a he's a he's, 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 yeah, he's, he's one of the He's, one, He's of one of the greats. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, of course. Bernard Herrmann is nuts. And there are moments where I, there's like, oh, this is the Bernard Herrmann moment. This is me trying to rip off Bernard Herrmann right over here. And this is that over there. And so I, I definitely think about him too. So it's basically, it's it's a ashes of, of an ode to some of my favorite composers.
1: I'm sure if they all were still alive, I'm sure everybody would be thrilled with <laughs> how this came out.
0: Or yeah, or they'd hate it. <laughs> Either way. <laughs> Yeah. You know what I mean? They, they, they really do. Like, you know, there's a whole, there, there are almost two stories being told. And and John Williams taught us that too, is that the heart of when I think about like the ultimate movie score, John Williams is like, obviously the King. And then I think about Empire Strikes Back or, or this is a fantasy and it's romantic and it's gorgeous. And, you know, that story, that thing that really like you've got Luke and you've got Yoda and you've got all this wonderful, Gorgeous mysticism, but then when you have Han and Leia, you've got one of the most gorgeous stories because it's a romance story where they don't get to have each other, and it's wonderful. You just feel that pull every time. And then there's just like, Ben Williams is a king. So lucky to like to, to be able to hear his stuff.
1: Yeah, and you're and you're an LA person, so I'm sure you've probably seen his little symphony shows around when he does all you these know, movie never, scores. I,
0: i wish i have but i haven't i just missed them so i don't know I, I better get on it before it's too late yeah
1: i'll say this if people don't aren't familiar with death clock if they have preconceived notions about all of this stuff this <gasps> mm-hmm. movie i th- really think will like oh wow this is a very impressive it's impressive just musically story-wise and it's like bro if you've seen all this stuff it's like wait a minute yeah we like said these characters do have an arc and a, a growth arc here for everybody mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and it's like you kind of don't expect it to really stick at the end, but it does, you know, like even from the beginning, like the way, like just like the, the Abigail stuff with Abigail, like you, you, you kind of expect that to like come around in a more, you know, okay, (laughs) we're going to do this. What's how it's going to end. He's going to, you know, but it doesn't go that way. Even I thought, Oh, maybe she's going to come back. And I'm glad that the way you did it kept, you kept that path. And I was like, all right, that's all that needed to be said was, that moment there and and it was Yeah. It's a, it was a, it's it just really impressive. I don't know there's no other way around there's no other word about it. I, I'm <laughs> just gushing over it because it's like this is Metalocalypse, it should be like it's like, like an adult version of Metalocalypse. And I I fucking love that fact that it's like this is a this started off as a fun cartoon that people thought was kind of silly and it turned into yeah. this thing that become a touring band, a band that puts out great albums yeah. and you know, yeah. it's just very it's just very uh, it's imp- it's it's good for you, man. Yeah, you deserve all the f- you oh, deserve well, the credit for this because, uh, yeah, you created this. But the people you have to work with you, that's where to me real junior shines. Like, yes, yeah, so I can write this stuff. I could write the music I write this stuff. But if you don't have the right people around you yeah, to well, let me- export it like you, okay, you had yeah. Bear. You've had like uh, yeah, yeah, you directed this one too. like you didn't direct. Uh, yeah. Uh, you didn't direct um *Requiem*, but you directed this one, and I was like, okay, yeah. all right. I felt like like you were like, all right, I'm in this. Like you were like, all right, that. I felt like well, you writing I and mean, that kind of made you. I feel you felt more not ownership, but
0: well, I mean, when I'm when I'm writing and I'm making the music like something like *Doomstar*, I don't have the time to direct. I I'm usually, I mean, that was like such a concentrated amount of time where we had to do that. But ultimately, you know, I'm I work with Mark Brooks who directed that one, and. You know, I have something to say about every single shot. So my fingerprints are all over it, but I didn't have the time to kind of like um, really like get into the composition of every single shot. And I love that. And I'm always kicking myself for just being too overworked to, to be able to do that stuff. In this case, in this movie, I knew I wanted to expand the look. So you'll notice first and foremost that we're in a different aspect ratio we're in the wider screen the 2351, which to me is like that's the movies that's john carpenter that's uh that's star wars that's akira kurosawa you know what he wants to always, but, <laughs> but 235, 235 aspect ratio to me is like a big thing and then we i wanted to start like we only had you know on the tv show and one of the things that makes a tv show affordable is that you have you reuse characters and reuse the angles most of them are at eye level there's no dynamic angles. You can't tilt the camera down or tilt the camera up without having to redraw your background and redraw all your characters. And and this time I said, let's let's find the time and the budget. So I worked with Titmouse to say, like, let's elevate the look of this. So even if you turn so even if you take all the cool music and the dialogue and the story and turn it down and you just look at it, this movie looks better than anything we've ever done because we tried really hard. I have a uh, a really talented compositor that I started working with during this Galacticon version, this Galacticon live action version, where I started experimenting with practical effects and all these cool things. And I started getting into, and I noticed as we were doing Metalocalypse, that we, if we could spend the time in co- compositing, we could elevate our look without having to tax animators, having to like really make animators work harder. We could do all the all the really heavy lifting in, and compositing so Brian Weeder is the compositor and he really is a champ and we sat there and just worked out every single shot from and tried to make it look as cool as possible and there's some places where you have to go all right most of the money's going to go here because I want to I want this to be visually exciting towards the end you know I want to make sure there's enough meat on the bone where you're getting new looks and new things and new Sequences, and that was another thing too. So, and then on top of that, I wanted to put like a score that was really big and meaningful, and you know, and takes you on a ride as well. So, I wanted to combine all these things at the same time, and you can't do that without a really great team. And in Titmouse, in the art director Arthur Tang, who's a genius, Brian Weeder, Mike Roush, the animators, Travis Simon, who is the uh, animation animation director. All these people, we're we're talking every single day and we're trying to problem solve and we're just, we're really excited. We're watching the ILM documentary on Disney Plus and getting excited about all that old school kind of classic technique. And we just kind of keep thinking about an analog world, even though we're working in a digital one. So we're trying to make everything look cooler than it has before. We're trying to just also just scuff it up a little bit too, make it a little bit more interesting. Really think about lighting from scene to scene stuff that you can do easily in a live action set, but it's really difficult to kind of articulate and to follow light logic and all that stuff. And it seems, so all these little things, we're trying to make them feel kind of cool and dreamy. And that's what this thing should feel like. It's a big, crazy metalocalypse dream. And like, did I see that? Is this real, (laughs) you know? Why are they, you know? So all that stuff is just like, we're kind of thinking of like, to me, I think this is a, a heavy metal fable, almost like something that you would dream about or an orchestra would play and, you know, and uh, does it exist, doesn't it? Because it's so funny because there are Metalocalypse fans, you know, since the announcement of this thing, they, they keep on asking, is this real? They keep <laughs> looking at like the, the trailer and the poster and they're like, what is this? What is this? And I'm like, yeah, that's the question. Is this real or is this a dream? And I want people to kind of walk away and go like, this is sticking with me. And I'm reevaluating it for that reason. Basically, like what you said is what I'm hoping for
1: yeah <laughs> i think that'll be the reaction you get when this finally comes out to the public like is there any plans yeah, it, yeah. is it possible are we doing any like any of adults fandom events where it could, it could be released in theaters or is it all just going to be i don't know if that's affected by the world
0: i don't know i i really don't know i don't know if that's affected by the world as well so so the question is you know <laughs> I mean, the fact that this movie got made is just one of the most crazy things in the world. You know, it really is that that we were sitting there. I'm so glad we got it finished before everything kind of went haywire. And I'm just really happy that it's coming out on a physical format as well, too, because I'm a big physical media person. I have a pretty big Blu-ray collection, and I'm just an avid purchaser. And I also love Blu-rays and movies and 4Ks because that's how I learned how to do all this stuff is through watching, re-watching, listening to directors talk. While I was making this movie, I was watching the Masterclass. Uh, I was watching every director talk. I, I listened to Ron Howard. He said things that I was like, oh, it's genius. Thank God I listened to that. I listened to like David Mamet talk about writing. I listened to Hans Zimmer and Danny Elfman talk about scoring. So,
1: David Lynch is a fun one.
0: <laughs> yeah, David Lynch is awesome too. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I love David Lynch. So and I think david lynch has a like whether or not he articulates this a, a philosophy there's a philosophy of, of his that i've gleaned that i've defined in my own terms that i really like to uh but i really i think is an important thing too i think he's got like a lot of hypnotic effects going on in his in his work you know and i think that's interesting too and i think about stanley kubrick and feeling a movie rather than kind of you know listening to every word just kind of feeling it wash over you and that's the mood and that's the camera work and that's the cinematography and all that stuff and even though this is an animated crazy bonkers adult swims show we were trying to think in terms of cinematic and like how can you elevate this how can you elevate it how can you punch above your budget how can you make it look and feel more expensive than it is because this is not an expensive movie
1: it looks it though even for animation i'm like oh wow this it looks i guess that you said you said earlier it looks better
0: yeah there's stuff we've never done oh by the way of all that stuff i think we had really great storyboard artists too which really made it seem bigger and bigger. And so my main thing was when I talked to the to the crew and I talked to storyboard artists, I said, this is great. Can we make, can we pull the camera back about 20 feet and make it even wider? Because TV can be like, especially animated TV can be claustrophobic. The scenes can be too tidy, just a couple of talking heads. And so I said, there's nothing worse than a close-up in our world because our characters don't look that cool unless we do a very special version of them. How wide can you get? How can you put everybody in the same shot? Again, thinking about Howard Hawks, via uh, John Carpenter, and stuff like that. So, those are the things we were thinking about. We just we had a big list of things, and what it was was a bunch of film nerds collecting every single day and trying to make something cool.
1: Every even the covers, like I gotta say, like the Doomstar, the Army of the, the Army of the Doomstar cover for the movie, yeah, is yeah. I love the stained glass like feel, just and how big and small they are at the beginning. It's like that. Yeah, the leading lines of the of that stained glass image around them. it's like, oh, there's a little Easter egg in there. If I pay attention to this, I wait, is that? Yeah, well, there's a lot of little things in that thing that I, that I know subconsciously. It's like, oh, wait a minute, I know I've seen this. Like, this is I think that's probably from season three. There's a little thing there that, oh, wait a minute, now you gotta re- now you gotta kind of want to go back and start over and watch everything.
0: Well, that's the idea of that that stained glass prophecy wall that kind of shows up in the movie. I knew at some point I thought this is a poster of the movie. There's a version that, it doesn't really spoil anything, but we are in one way or another telling the story in that in that thing, you know, um, in that stained glass poster, and also just that's their future, that's their legacy. they're gonna have to confront all of that, and um and that's the, that's the whole movie just like that prophecy wall I think is the whole movie so I'm glad you reacted to
1: that oh man it's like I, I'm a big movie poster fan it's like you know like I, I you know what was it uh Drew Struzan like that was always been one of my favorite yeah. I, for, I forgot I'm forgetting the guy who did the Nightmare on Elm Street covers I was like there's been so many beautiful <laughs> like I, I I I miss those covers exactly. I I tired of these photo oh left profile right profile like teal and orange. Yeah posters it's like all right cool they're boring it's like oh there might be a cool pose in every yeah. every eighth one it's cool but something magical it's like I enjoy everybody who does all the Mondo art interpretations of every movie you see online I love those like that should be the movie yeah, cover right sure. there well that's that also
0: that's but that's the idea you know I think about that stuff too because it's the same kind of ideology and heavy metal can you make an album cover so cool that, that slide unseen, you may show some interest in it you know and that's the uh, that's the idea when when you see you know an Iron Maiden album cover. You go, wait a minute, who is this character and what is this world? And oh my gosh, there's that character again in another world. What is going on here? And it makes your brain start moving around. And your imagination just starts kind of acting up, and you have to you have to start kind of searching. So you get all these little clues, and and it it becomes, and you you fill in all the pieces yourself. In our case, though, we have like the album cover as well for the Death album four, that is connected the story as well and I haven't really said what that is but I'm going to leave it open for, for interpretation but there's a there's a lot going on in mm-hmm. that one too
1: how very um, David Lynch of you it, <laughs> it's open to your what do well, I mean, you think was,
0: <laughs> well that's the idea well I think David Lynch does do a great I think he he asks questions and never gives answers yes you know and I think that's part of part of Twin Peaks part of um Part of all of his work, I think he's asking questions with his camera, or he's just asking questions in general, and they pertain, and I think he's got the answers, and whether or not he does, I am intrigued, and I'm participating. I'm not just like being yelled at or screamed at from his movies. He is asking questions, and I'm leaning in going, what is the answer? What is the answer? I need to know. Even the new Twin Peaks, the, the way that it starts out, where there's a person on the couch sitting and he's looking at a glass box on a wall. So you have two shots. One is the person on the couch, and the other shot is a brick wall with this glass box on it. And we are slowly, slowly pushing in on both and cutting back and forth. And and I'm going, okay, there's a guy in thing, and there's a glass box. Okay, all right, they, we're taking a lot of time. It's like 30 seconds have passed. We're still kind of looking at this box and this glass and this guy. What are, what is their relationship? What is that thing? Who is that guy? And I start asking questions, which means that David Lynch is doing his job. He's asking questions and now I'm participating.
1: I'm intrigued. It's very much, do you need to put your phone down? Like, you know, it's like, oh, this, uh, yeah. like, oh, I, I can just watch this. Down, yeah. I, can, I can watch. No, you have to pay attention. Cause if you like, kind of look away from yourself as well, from this movie as well, you kind of, it's like, Hey, you waited like 10 years to see what happens next, like just put your phone down, just turn it on mute and just focus on this. Cause I I did my best to like, just pretend I was in a theater. have a nice sound system. I was like, just cool. Put the field on mute, turn it upside down, just turn off the lights and just turn on the sound system and let's go.
0: Well, that's, that's the idea is that, and that's what the intro, that's why the intro of the movie is the intro of the movie. I have, you know, like two minutes of music while we're showing you something. So that to me is the David Lynch school of filmmaking. And what is this? And where are we going from here? And how slow can we push? How slow can we show you this? So that we're not yet. Because I also think when I get into a movie, when I go to a movie theater, or I start a movie, especially though at a movie theater where there is no distraction, it's just you and the theater. I think usually they're shoveling a lot of information in my mouth. There's usually credits. There's usually like a little bit of storytelling that's happening and you're like, I'm not sure if I'm catching this yet. And there's a character and you're like, I don't know who that is yet. I don't know who that is. And I can't even track where we are. And it's a lot of information where I think, I think almost having an overture just gets you prepared. And and it's almost like taking a pocket watch and swinging it back and forth and counting backwards. And that's what, that's the, that's the idea. Hmm. How do I hypnotize you?
1: Yeah, it's like it's like yeah. It's this movie's like what you said about an hour. This is about a like about an hour long movie.
0: This movie's eighty minutes, so that's the big difference too.
1: Yeah, you used yeah. every minute of it like that. That the intro. It's like I cool it wasn't just like. Two or three minutes of just different, like oh, this pro- this company, this you know production by produced by this with association.
0: We didn't have any opening credits. In fact, we didn't say the title of the movie until the very, very end of the movie. Like until the last words of the movie, you see the title of the movie, and only there, and only at the very end, do we start saying like you know who you know who the cast was and who did what and who the crew was and all that stuff. This one, this one is kind of an overture too. But, and there, and all of the tones and all all of the things that you're going to hear later on are inside of those melodies. All those melodies, you won't hear it the first time through, but when you go back the second time, you're going to hear important music that'll happen later on, throughout. Really, a lot. And I keep, and that's that's a fun part about composing is that you can take a melody and interpolate it, and do the inverse, the retrograde, whatever you need to do, or just use a chunk, three notes of it, and keep on kind of. Expressing your characters, um, their their the, the path that they're going on through through this melody. So you'll hear it at the very beginning, and the first time you hear it, it's a different mood than it is the last
1: time you hear. it I love that subtleness. Those things are yeah makes it, it's it funny, yeah, it, it's a, it, and it's fun like to see like you may not catch it like till like the third time. Like now that you said it, I'm probably going to notice it. I'm like, oh yeah, there it is, and it's like. I, and i've watched it at least three times already and it's and it's like oh it's 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 a i'm looking forward to watching it a fourth time now (laughs) it's like see if i notice it that's
0: good yeah that's great well that's what i'm hoping is that i like a movie that you watch the first time and you go okay i'm gonna watch it the second time knowing what i know now because now i know where this goes and this movie has always had to have it had to end the way it ended and this is when you when you pull back and you ask yourself what is the story about this is about me explosion who has to write this song but really it is kind of a relationship romantic comedy underneath everything and i won't say who it's between because i think the audience needs to discover that for themselves but um but it's definitely in there so there's like there's i also wanted to make dire fucked up moments and moments that make you feel good and i really pushed both of them (laughs) you know i and i knew that was going to be the that was going to be the experiment, and plus, I just want to see how much harder can we go than somebody else's movie.
1: Did did you get any like pushback from Adult Swim? It's like, or did you kind of did kind of let, let you have free reign on your final cut?
0: They they um the only thing I had to really worry about, and this is because we're in this bracketed kind of home video place, is that I couldn't make the movie over eighty minutes, and I wish that I could have because I think I could have in retrospect. I think I could have added a, like two minutes into it really in a couple of places, but that was the only thing I was up against. They were really like, go and make the movie you want to make. And I have to say, I was really, it's a terrifying place to be, you know, because you kind of do want to check against, you know, the, the studio and the authority figures to make sure that like, we're, we're all talking about the same thing, but they said, go and do the thing you have to do, make it work, make it entertaining. That's up to basically my own, you know, me and the crew's, and the people that I work with taste. So on top of that, I have to say one other really important thing about this is that I had someone in my corner who is known for making really great movies. And they were a part of my kind of story sculpting team. Um, I had Janita Tulio, first of all, who I've worked with since Home Movies, and she's a genius. I had Mark Brooks, who is really... um, Knows the show inside and out, and kind of you know, he, he certainly leads towards like the more kind of co- comedy stuff. Where I was like, this is going to have comedy, but this is going to be a different thing. I had Brian Posehn, who I think is incredibly funny.
1: Yeah.
0: And then, and then the really the guy who I was like, please come and work with me on this, and he said yes, and I was like, fuck yeah, is Andrew Kevin Walker, and Andrew Kevin Walker wrote Seven. Oh. And oh. Andrew oh. Kevin Walker wrote um the new David Fincher movie that's gonna be like premiering in Venice. The killer. He also wrote Sleepy Hollow. Um I acted in an animated movie that he did and that's kind of how I met him. And then we became friends. Uh just because I was an admirer of his and he would like read some of my work and check in on it and I would just I would just, you know, I'm always kind of like trying to just become better at whatever it is I do from guitar to writing. And um He also just really understands structure. And so having him participating in this project as much as he did was, um, you couldn't ask for better kind of like guidance because this dude is funny. He's a great writer and he really understands structure. And he just, once we kind of got the structure nailed down, he was like, okay, you got a good structure, you know? Now it's up to the direction and like the mood and the tone and the acting and the comedy and all that stuff to like make it work. But you can't fail with this structure. And I was like, yeah, I agree. I agree. So I would like it if I were, if I was in production, I would be asking him questions like, you know, Hey, I need it. I think I'm in a place where because I'm at this, because I have to, I can't go over this amount of time. I have to tell the story, which means I have to sacrifice something else. Let's talk about it. So he would join me and we would talk about this stuff and, ultimately leave it back to me to make a decision but i would get a really smart person who has been here many times over to help out or at least to listen to me or to like give me some indication he'd say like well if you realize if you do this and you don't get that over there and i go yeah i know but it's a here's my or i'd pitch something and i'd say what do you think about this and i and i'd take his words very seriously because i think he is a he is a major craftsperson
1: Uh, he was your pickles that's so sweet
0: (laughs) (laughs) whatever he was he definitely like he um you know and i'm also like you know like i said when i when i i pitched this story to these people like on zoom you know during the pandemic to this team of people i basically said listen i'm gonna pitch something this is gonna be different than what we've done before it's gonna be a little bit more dramatic it's gonna be a little bit bigger it's gonna be more like intense it's gonna be deeper you know all that stuff. And uh, I want you to tell me that I'm out of my mind if you think so. I don't want you to just kind of like say that I know what I'm doing. And I do. I mean, there is like some part, death clock lives inside me and they're telling me what they want to do in some way. And I'm just going like, okay, but we have to be careful. We have to set this up the right way. We have to really kind of build a whole entire new universe out of the parts that we already have. So that was the, that was the fun part.